This is the podcast for RUF at App State. Everyone is welcome and no one is unexpected. For more information, visit us at appstate.ruf.org. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Well, thank you for your truth. And we ask that your truth would set us free to see what is real and seeing what is real to be free. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I don't do well with surgery, uh, specifically the kind of drugs that they give you to put you to sleep before they do the surgery. I don't do well with anything more intense than Advil or Flintstones gummies. My whole body gets weird. In my senior year of high school, I was getting my wisdom teeth out. So I go to the dentist and I get in the chair and they're prepping me and they put the tubes into my nostrils and they start pumping me full of their gas. And I think I'd been too nervous or embarrassed to tell them, um, do you think you could just kind of waft the gas toward me? Or maybe just give me like a little mist of, of the drug. Maybe you breathe it in and you just kind of breathe it on me. Instead, they turned the tank up to 11 and I'm immediately, within five seconds, I'm immediately space traveling through all dimensions. And I am so out of it. I mean, I'm a space traveler, ground control to Major Tom. Tom's gone. He's gone. And I can't speak. Instead, I make a pitiful, and I keep doing that until eventually one of the assistants comes over to me, pulls out the tubes, and I immediately lean over the chair and vomit on the floor. And eventually, when they fix that, they put their sorcery back in my nose, their nostril drug jewelry, and they put the dose level appropriate for a newborn puppy, and I immediately pass out. And when I wake up, I'm still so out of it that my mom has to help me into the waiting room. And there I see in the waiting room someone who I went to school with, a girl that I was not friends with, but I knew from school. But in that moment, in my state of mind, we were best friends. So with a mouth full of blood-soaked gauze and a, a nice red-orange stain on my shirt. I go, Dorothy! And I 
run, walk like a zombie toward her as if I'm going to give my best friend a nice big hug. And I can still remember the, the look of fear etched on her face. And thankfully, my mom grabbed me by the shoulders and steered me out into the parking lot. In that state of mind, I, I fully believed that it was real that Dorothy and I were best friends. Within a couple of hours, I remembered that we had had, I don't know, zero conversations ever, and I had traumatized her. And yet I, I treated as real something, of course, I didn't fully believe that we were really best friends. But in that moment, I was living in unreality. And I think this is a picture of what the Bible tells us about our relationship with reality. And by real, I mean something that's solid, that's actual, not an illusion. By real, I mean something that is real the same way that this, this podium or stand is real or the chair you're sitting on. That's what I mean by real. And the Bible explains to us that our, our problem with reality is one is that we treat as unreal things that God says are real. And we treat as real things that God says are unreal. So we, we take false gods like praise and affirmation and romance and money, and we treat them as though they're real when God tells us these aren't real gods. And we, we treat sin as though it's a myth made up to make us feel bad when God tells us it's absolutely real. But there's an equally weighty problem in our relationship with reality is that, that we functionally live as though things are real that we don't fully believe are real. Meaning, we often live and act without wondering what would have to be true for the way I'm living to make sense. Whatever the case is, here's the thing. We struggle to live fully in reality. And so here's the question I want us to, to look at tonight. What is real? What is real? And I want us to, to dive into this looking at the Christian perspective on reality Focusing on 1 Corinthians 15 and how it informs our grasp of what's real in three big categories. One, life, two, death, and three, resurrection. So life, death, and resurrection. And because I'm going a bit philosophical with this one, everybody gear up. <laughs> what I want you to, to hear is that um, how do we know what is real? We know what is real because God has defined reality. He is real and he, he sets the terms. But by looking at all things through the lens of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we see reality and we find that our, our experience in the real world makes sense. And also I'll add, this is a really big topic and so I'm not gonna be able to fully cover this in 25 minutes. And so I would invite you to see this as, as, as a way of beginning to explore the question. So first let's look at life. From the Christian perspective, life is real. Wow, big stuff. But let's ask the question, how do we know life is real? And I'm not talking about a way of, of saying, how do we know that life is real? Like you would ask at 3 a.m. in Waffle House. Like, how do we know that we're not all just like a figment of Luke's imagination, right? <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is that how do we know that the things in life that we find most essential Beauty and meaning and purpose and love. How do we know these are real? I'm not asking, how do we know if rocks are real? One, because of course we know they're real, but also I don't really care if they're real. The question is, is love real in the same way that a rock is real? I can't pick up and throw love. I can't test it in a lab. 
But we treat love, we treat meaning, we treat purpose as though they're just as real as the chair you're sitting on. But how do we know that it's real? And what would it mean if love isn't real in the same way a rock is real? But then again, what would it really mean if it is as real as the rock or the chair that you're sitting on? So keep that in mind as we jump into 1 Corinthians 15. So here in this chapter, Paul, the author, is an early follower of Jesus and a preacher of the gospel. So the message of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection from the dead. He is defending this message against people who are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. So they're essentially saying when people die, they remain in the grave, and that's it. And here is Paul's main argument against their their, uh, rejection of resurrection in verses 12 through 17. If the dead aren't raised, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And there are a whole host of implications for that. One, it makes the whole message of the gospel untrue, and it makes Paul a peddler of lies. But even worse than that, he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And the, the, the word futile can also mean worthless or even corrupt. So if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then your faith is meaningless because Jesus' death was meaningless. He didn't die for your sins. He died for nothing. And so your faith is futile. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he in reality has dealt a death blow to sin and to death itself. Which means, this is very important because it means that resurrection assumes the reality of sin. But it also makes sense of the fact that whether you believe in sin or not, we all treat it as though it's real. So for Paul's audience, I mean, they didn't doubt the, the, the reality of sin, that there is a perfect God and we have sinned against him, which means ultimately to reject him. They didn't doubt that. But what about for us who struggle to believe that sin is, is real the same way, that your, your chair is real? We may doubt the reality of sin, but none of us can escape shame. This sense that something has gone wrong with us. We can't escape it. And the resurrection of Jesus, it tells us you really need a rescuer. And so your sense that something has gone wrong, there's a wrongness in the world and it's in you. It's connecting to something that is actual and solid and real. And the resurrection, it says even more than that. It says that, that all these things that we experience as real, meaning and purpose and love, that we can't see, but treat as real, they're truly real. Jennifer Fullwater, she's an author, we look at the quote on the screen, who writes about how she became a Christian, and the turning point for her came when she had a child, and she writes this about the experience. She writes, I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, well, from a pure atheist materialist perspective, he is a randomly evolved collection of chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, then all the love I feel for him is nothing more than chemical reactions in our brain. And I looked down and thought, that's not true. It's not the truth. When you look down at a niece or a nephew, when you receive and give a much needed hug, when you are moved to tears by a song, is what you're experiencing real? Is it solid? Is it actual? And we treat these things as real. We can't help but do it. But why? 
Why would these things be real? What would that mean? The reality of Jesus' resurrection, it affirms that all of these things are real because God is real and he created life to be more than just rocks. And he cares about all of it enough to send Jesus into the world to experience death itself and rescue all of it up from the grave. I mean, the heart of the Christian message, it affirms the solidity of this stuff you can't see, but you know that it's the most important stuff in life. You know it. Here's what it means to live in reality. It means first to recognize that you're on the right track. You're not delusional. When when you hug your friend and you don't say, "Mm, this is meaningless, you're not delusional. You're connecting to reality because you know that the love that you have for your friends is real, it's meaningful, it's solid. But also to live in reality means to recognize that we're on the wrong track because we often treat things like love and meaning as real without asking why. What does that mean? The essential stuff is real, but only because God has given it its reality. (laughs) To live fully in reality is to recognize that the love of God is just as solid as the room we are in right now. Think about what, what would change in your life if you really fully believed that and you really lived it out. What would that change about your priorities? What would that change about the way that you... You spend your time idealizing some version of yourself that you've created in your mind. And how would it turn you instead to enjoy the God who loves you and made you and to use your gifts to serve him because he delights in you? To live fully in reality is to live with a full heart, full of love for God and others, which begins by asking him to show you how his love through Jesus is all the more real. So life is real. That's the first thing. The second, let's look at death. Death is real. And Paul, he continues his line of thinking in verse 18. If Christ is not raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died believing in Jesus' resurrection from the dead have perished. They've just slipped into nothingness. And this is a terrible thought for Paul, not just because it's, it is unpleasant, but because Jesus came to defeat death, and this would mean that death wins the day. I mean, he says this very clearly in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death will not get the victory. It will perish and slip into nothingness because the victory belongs to Jesus. And what does this tell us about reality? It tells us that our sense that death is not normal, it's not the way it's meant to be, it's even an enemy, that's connecting us to what is solid and true and real. We were not meant for death, but life with God. Death is an enemy because it strips us from our purpose, and it strips us even worse from our bodies, which are very good. And it's the victory of Jesus that confirms the horror of death as our enemy. There's a scene in Saving Private Ryan, the movie, where they're, uh, after the Allied troops have finally taken the beach in Normandy and defeated the Nazis at that battle, where there's a Jewish soldier, and he is handed, basically as a kind of dark souvenir, he's handed this Hitler Youth knife. And in that moment, he's holding it, and he begins sobbing uncontrollably. And obviously in that moment, it's because he's just been through a really traumatic battle, but also because he knows what the Nazis have been doing to Jews in Europe. 
And in that moment, it's the victory that gives him the space to actually face the horror of the enemy that they've been up against. It's, it's the victory of Jesus being raised from the dead that gives us the grounds to acknowledge that death is not the way it's meant to be. It's an enemy. And, that, and our sense of grief and deep sadness in the face of death, it's, it's real. It's connecting us to what is, is solid. Um, and this, I think, helps us understand the lie that the Christian message leads people to downplay death because it says death doesn't win, so don't take death seriously. No, I think it's the exact opposite. It's Jesus' resurrection that gives us the grounds to look at death and say this is what was needed to defeat it, and death needed to be defeated. But outside of the resurrection of Jesus, what grounds do we have to really grieve the deep, deep sadness of death and the deep sadness of reality. If death is just someone slipping into nothingness, then that means that your deep sadness in the face of death is, means nothing. It's worthless. But now we know that's not true. And it's too awful an idea for us to embrace. And this leads us to all the cliches related to death. Death is natural. They're not really gone. They're living in your heart. And we do this because we, can't, we don't feel like we can really face the deep, deep wells of grief and horror and sadness that come as we reflect on, on the truth, the elephant in the room, which is that I will die and everyone that you know, of course, will die. What does it mean to face the elephant in the room? Does it mean despair and give up? No. The Christian message says, admit that that there's an elephant in the room and it really is an elephant. Death truly is an enemy. And it's the last enemy to be defeated. Your sense that death is a horror is truly real. So what does it mean to to live in reality? I think it means to disconnect and to, to push back on all of the, the forces and all the things selling you distraction, seeking to in, entertain you and numb you away from, from grief and connecting with your own sadness and the sadness of those around you and the sadness of the world. And instead to connect deeply with it because your grief and your sorrow are an invitation to be real. And to be real in God's way because this is God's posture toward these things. Take the invitation, though, not as a way of being morbid, but exactly because Jesus rose from the dead. So he will be with you. And when we look at reality, we look at the deep wells of sadness and grief that are there. We are looking at a reality that Jesus stepped into and was willing to endure and to rescue through his own death, swallowing up death in victory. Death is real. But last, we've seen life and death are real, but let's look at resurrection. Resurrection is real. And Paul finishes the section here by underlining, italicizing, and highlighting the all-importance of Jesus' resurrection. He starts in verse 19, you can see there. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope is just for this life, we're delusional, and we're wasting our time in this room right now. But, he continues in 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
First fruits is a farming term. It's the, the first offering of a crop. So this is basically talking about a down payment. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all those who belong to him are guaranteed that they will be raised like him. So Jesus being raised from the dead is the guarantee that God has not let sin and death win the day. Jesus' resurrection is the reversal of what happened with Adam, the first human, who rejected God and brought death into the world. It's the beginning of the defeat of all of the enemies of God's kingdom and beauty. It tells us in verse 25, Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. All the enemies of hope, they have no chance because the resurrection is the guarantee that hope will win the day, that hope is actually real. I was talking with with Danny yesterday about his zero hope policy for for football at the moment, which is understandable. I can understand that. But when when you love teams, they can break your heart and you become cynical. But even take the most cynical sports fans out there like Browns fans or Mets fans or Danny or me, and you will find them every Saturday or Sunday or whenever packing stadiums, screaming so loud that they're killing brain cells in six degree weather because they can't help but hope. As much as they say there's no hope, they're living on hope. You cannot live without hope. If you are living and breathing, you are living on hope. Hope that your life means something. Hope that your suffering means something. Even when we say there is no hope, even when we feel that there is no hope, on some level, we keep moving and we keep seeking. We can't stop hoping because that's what's been baked into our hearts, this hunger for real hope. We just can't stop it. But outside of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. Your longings, your aims, your desires, they're all meaningless. We're just meaningless meat spinning in a meaningless universe. But no, you know that that's not true. You know it. But how is it not true? We all know it. But what does it mean that it's not true? There really is hope. So are you living in reality? And what does it mean to to live in reality? Are you believing that there is hope that is real that's, that's unreal? Hope in yourself, hope in a career, hope in romance as the thing that is really going to set you free and save you and make you full. These are empty hopes. Are you numbing and quieting the hope in your heart, seeking to just press it down because it's too painful to hope. The invitation here is to place your hope in the God who makes real the deepest longings of your heart and says, you're not delusional. And you're not delusional if you place your hope in me because I'm real, because I really love you. This hope, it releases us from fear and cynicism to to actually live for what matters and is as solid as the grave and will last beyond the grave. God's kingdom displayed through anyone who would place even the weakest faith in Jesus and hope in him. Do you want what's real? Do you want it? In Mockingjay, the final book of The Hunger Games, sorry, not sorry, I'm really not sorry, PETA is recovering from this installation of lies in his brain. He's been poisoned to to believe things that are absolutely unreal 
about Katniss, the hero, his love. And after the trauma of what was inflicted on him, Katniss basically has to nurse him back to health by telling him what is real over and over again, most of all related to herself and who she is and how she relates to him. The final question he has to ask her is, you love me? Real? She says, real. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Living in reality, most of all, is a process of healing to understand who God really is and how he really postures himself toward you, how he really feels about you. He is the one who gave life to you, who gave you life, who came to bleed and die for you, the one who is your hope. What is real? It's his love for you. Look to Jesus and find that reality is really good news. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, reminding us of this, this good news that at the bottom level, even more real than our test, even more real than this room in front of us, you and your love for us and the hope of the gospel that Jesus came and lived and died and was raised from the dead for us so that all the longings of our heart find their answer and destination in him because we really have you. In your name, amen.